Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Professional Book Nerds podcast sponsored by Overdrive. This is Emma. And on today's episode, we have author Claire Legrand. Claire Legrand used to be a musician until she realized she couldn't stop thinking about the stories in her head. Now she's the New York Times bestselling author of 11 novels, most notably the Imperium Trilogy, as well as the Cavendish Home for Boys and Girls, the Edgar Award-nominated Some Kind of Happiness, and Saw Kill Girls, which was nominated for both a Bram Stoker Award and a Lambda Literary Award. She is also one of the four authors behind The Cabinet of Curiosities, a critically acclaimed anthology of short stories for young readers. When not writing, Claire enjoys tending to her many plants, learning about fashion and interior design, and quoting Star Trek to anyone who will listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. I am delighted to welcome back our guest today. We have Claire Legrand. Hello. Hi, so happy to be here. Welcome back. So the last time you were on the Professional Book Nerds podcast in 2018, the podcast had different hosts. (laughs) (laughs) So we are very excited to have you back today to talk about your forthcoming book, A Crown of Ivy and Glass. Yes, I am so excited to talk to you about this. My first adult book. Very exciting. (laughs) I heard about this book months ago and I immediately emailed the team uh, at your publisher to say, I need to read this. This looks absolutely fantastic. So for our listeners who may be wondering what this book is about, could you give them a little bit of a synopsis? Yeah, absolutely. So this book, we pitched it as Bridgerton meets a court of thorns and roses. Um, So it's whenever I talk to somebody not in the book world who maybe not who may be not familiar with the court of thorns and roses, I just tell them it's like Bridgerton, but with magic and monsters and um, lots of like weird fantasy stuff. And that seems to give people an idea. Um, It's about, you know, it's the first in a trilogy. Each book is about a different sister. Um, The trilogy overall focuses on three sisters, the Ashbournes, uh, Gemma, Farron, and Mara. And book one, A Crown of Ivy and Glass, is Gemma's story. She is, Gemma is a sort of prickly, interesting, unlikable character, which are my favorite kinds of characters to write. Um, She begins the book um, kind of spoiled and superficial and um, selfish and impulsive, but then she grows tremendously throughout the course of the novel. And she's so fun. She was so fun to write and she's so fun to continue to write because all of the sisters appear in each other's books. The main thrust of the story in the Middle Mist trilogy is that these three sisters 
Gifts are daughters in an anointed noble family, which means they were blessed by the gods with magic, with very powerful magic. And they are trying to figure out who or what is trying to destroy the middle mist, which is this magical barrier that protects their world from the realm of the gods. And Gemma, unfortunately, is the only one in her family who cannot perform magic. And in fact, she lives with chronic pain and debilitating panic attacks that she tries to hide from everyone under this glittering party girl persona. So the this first book follows her journey as they begin to unravel the mystery of what's going on with the Middle Mist. And also she falls in love and she starts coming to terms with her mental health challenges. And then book two is Farron's book, The Eldest Sister, and book three is Mara, The Middle Sister. So that's the general overview of what's going on with this series. I love that. There are so many wonderful elements in this story, and it certainly ticked all of the boxes that I look for in a book. And you really had me at Bridgerton meets like fantasy romance is absolutely spot on. So where did the idea originally come from for this story and for the story of these three sisters? So there were a couple of pieces of inspiration. One was just this little thing that I saw while on a road trip, actually, which is why when I speak with students at schools, I always tell them, pay attention because you'll find little pieces of inspiration everywhere around you. I was on a road trip with my partner and we saw this road sign for a little street that sort of went off into the woods and it was called Middle Mist Lane. And I was like, oh, that's a cool word. I'm gonna add it to my word bank. And so that was kind of stewing back there, like Middle Mist, it's very evocative. What does that mean? And so that started you know, percolating in the back of my mind. And then I knew I wanted to write some sort of romantic fantasy series at some point. And I started thinking about um, all the things that I love. So really complex um, female protagonists and really complex, interesting, passionate romances and dark magic and fabulous dresses and discussing mental health in a fantasy setting and um, being inspired by classic romantic ballets. All of these books are inspired by different ballets. So I just wanted to write something that brought me a lot of joy. And I also wanted to write something in which the protagonists are all dealing with anxiety and depression, body issues, confidence issues, loneliness. And this is discussed, frankly, on the page. And even though they are living with these challenges, they are still able to fall in love and be the heroes and save the day. That was a really important uh, thing for me when working on these books. And it continues to be. Absolutely. And so in wanting to address some of those things, like sort of dealing with um, anxiety or chronic pain or any of those things that we often deal with as adults, is that why you decided the story might be better suited for an adult audience? This is, as you mentioned, your adult debut. Yeah, there were several factors that went into that. One is, I think with my YA, especially with the Imperium trilogy, those stories already lean toward the adult side. You know, they're very much crossover titles that have a lot of appeal for adult readers as well. So I felt like this was a very organic extension of that um, of that part of my writing. And honestly, I usually try to think about following what I am passionate about when I'm dreaming up new projects. And at this point in my life, I'm really interested in stories about adults, both as a writer and as a reader. 
So it just felt natural to me to explore these issues through the lens of an adult story and specifically a romantic fantasy adult story, because I love both of those genres so much. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I love, I love the adult (laughs) romance stories because I do enjoy the spice that accompanies some of those books. And so there is a, in my opinion, a nice level of spice to this story that I think readers will enjoy if that is what they are so inclined. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I'm glad you think so. I happen to agree. (laughs) Absolutely. And so funny to me as well, because that can be so different depending on your tastes, but I really enjoyed without giving anything away, the romantic scenes in this, uh, they were very spicy and well done. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, that's, It is. You're absolutely right. You know, when it comes to romantic scenes or romance in general, it's really down to the reader's specific taste as to whether or not a story or romance will resonate with them. So obviously when I'm writing a romance or romantic scene, I know I'm not going to, it's not going to resonate with every reader and that's fine. It doesn't need to. So I just try to think of what is true to me and what I would want to read that's usually like a good guiding light for me when writing any book. And I also think about, of course, what is true to the character, like how would they act in this situation? How does this fit in with their overall development? Um, And those scenes are really fun to write, but honestly, surprisingly difficult and exhausting because there are a lot of logistics involved. You know, you want to make sure my copy editor is always catching things like, okay, so there are three hands going on here and this person <laughs> only has two hands. So let's like, let's go back and fix the <laughs> the logistics of this so that it actually tracks and makes sense. Yeah, that is such a good point though. There are a lot of logistics to those scenes. And I imagine that that has to be tricky to keep everything organized, but I thought it was absolutely spot on. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So this book follows Gemma. And I know you mentioned that each book in the trilogy is going to follow one of the three Ashbourne sisters. And I'm wondering why you wanted to start with Gemma's story. Yeah, that's a great question. A part of it is that I just, it just felt right. And a lot of the time that happens during the creative process where you're not really sure why you made a decision. Um, but you make it and it feels right and you go with it. So part of it was just feeling like, you know, she is the person in this family who cannot perform magic. And so her introduction to um, this mystery of the middle mist coincides with her exploring her mental health challenges and also dealing with like her chronic pain and her loneliness that stems from not being able to perform magic and a family that's renowned for it. So it just felt like a really natural entry point to this story. If we had started with one of the other sisters, then it would have been just, I think it would have been too difficult logistically to introduce Gemma's journey in a way that felt natural. We would have had to wait like a whole book or two books and the things that happened to her needed to happen first. And also she was just, her voice just came to me immediately. She just bubbled up inside me and I I really wanted to tell her story first. So um, yeah, combination of factors. And I think that's so true. The journey that she goes on in this story as a reader, I agree that a lot of the things that we see certainly make sense as happening now 
and I will play to later books and other elements of the story. It's so hard not to want to spoil uh, things that happen in this book because there's so many cool things that happen in this book. <laughs> yes, I, I'm trying to tiptoe around spoilers as well. Absolutely. And so what was the writing process like for this story? Like how long did it take you when you first had those different ideas, you know, Middle Mist and so on to getting to now your publication of the book is imminent? It is a long process um, for each of my books. I, the front end of the creative process is a lot of just ideas simmering in my mind and not actual sitting down and writing yet just a lot of thinking and brainstorming and daydreaming. Um, I build playlists right away when I start working on a new project and I just dump all kinds of music into this sort of beta playlist that collects everything that sort of fits the tone and the atmosphere and the voice of what I'm crafting. And I also collect a lot of images online and I just start building visual and musical inspiration boards essentially. And that takes a long time. Uh, I would say that the process of outlining this entire trilogy and then outlining book one probably took a few months and then drafting took like writing the first draft of book one took two, three, four months. I honestly can't remember, (laughs) Um, but something in that, in that range Um, And then going back and forth with my editor during the editorial process takes another couple of months, depending on how many passes we have to do. So, you know, a year, year and a half from the actual, like sitting down and outlining to writing to editing. Um, But the actual like brainstorming and building this world and building these characters takes a long time. And it's one of those things that a lot of writers and creative people will relate to. I'm working, but I'm just sitting there thinking and listening to music. I'm going on a walk and my brain is worrying a thousand miles an hour. And that's how a lot of the initial brainstorming work gets done, which helps you build a solid foundation for all your outlining going forward. That's so interesting. And I'm wondering if now this is not your first book by any means you've written, I think it's, is it 11 or 12 books by now? This A Crown of Ivy and Glass will be my 12th. Will be 12. Mm-hmm. So does the process get easier as you continue to write books or is it sort of organized chaos? I mean, it sounds like <laughs> writing is one of those things that maybe can be extremely consistent, but could also just be different depending on, you know, the author or the book that you're writing or even the circumstances that you're under while you're writing it. That's a great question. And you're absolutely right that the circumstances in which you're writing a book definitely affect how you're feeling and the emotional lens through which you're viewing the world, which then colors how your character's emotional lenses are formed. So that definitely influences um, specific writing projects. But my process is very much organized chaos. I have spreadsheets and they're color coded, but then the spreadsheets end up changing a lot as I'm drafting. And a lot of my work is, as I said, you know, listening to music or going on walks and just letting my mind wander and disappearing into daydreams for hours at a time. So that is hard to quantify and explain. Um, But 
so my, my process stays mostly the same. And in some ways it becomes easier with each book. And in some ways it becomes more difficult. So it's easier because I know what I'm doing. Like I know what to expect. I know what my process feels like, and that it's going to be really messy and frustrating. And I know, <laughs> I know that that's just how it is. And it turns out okay in the end. So I know more of what to expect of myself, but also because with each book, I learn more and more about storytelling. I am harder on myself with each book. Like I am much more aware of what a book should be with each year that passes, both as a reader and as a writer, I learned so much. So then my standards continue to rise. So with each book that I work on, I am much more aware of what it should be and the difference between what it should be and what it is during those messy early stages. So that frustration is, I guess, more acute um, as I go on in my career, but also I know more what to expect. I kind of, I figured this out. I know my process. So it's, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Absolutely. So I'm wondering if in the process, was the title of this always going to be a crown of ivy and glass, or did that go through several iterations? I am trying to think, I believe that this title was always the title. Um, we tossed around a couple of other ideas and ended up coming back to this because it works on so many levels and I can't really explain those in depth without spoiling things, but um, it refers to various elements of the plot and the setting that are extremely important, both plot-wise and character-wise. Um, and I do have titles for books two and three, but those are not ready to be announced yet, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I really liked this title. It just was like Gemma's voice. It kind of just came to me right at the very beginning and it stuck and I'm glad that we were able to keep it. Um, it's very evocative. It makes me think of green things and shiny things. And I like both of those things. I'm like a magpie who wants to live in an English garden, you know, so aesthetic and vibe and tone and atmosphere are all very important to me, not only when writing, but also when um, engineering titles. And I, I really like this one. It's perfect. And I agree. It really provokes sort of the greenery and the sort of like Bridgerton high society element to it. And I also love what was done on the cover as well. Again, without going into too many specifics of the plot, all of those elements fit perfectly with the story. Yes. And I love the cover too. I've been so lucky with source books, my publisher, all of my books that I've published with them have incredible covers. And this one is no exception. I like that. It's very much a blend aesthetically of romance and fantasy. It, you know, it has a crown, it has these vines and flowers. It really meshes the two genres well, which is what I strove to do with the book itself. So yay. We all love beautiful covers. We really <laughs> do. Um, I talk about it often, but we do just love a gorgeous cover. And this absolutely is stunning. Now you tackle a lot of world building here. We're setting up the sort of whole realm for the middle mist trilogy. I'm wondering what your process is like to get into all of that world building. Like, do you do a lot of research or what mythology sort of inspired this world that you've created with the Ashbourne sisters? So I, I spend a lot of time during that messy brainstorming process building the world of whatever book I am working on. And for this one, I, I just, I didn't do any specific research. I drew inspiration from things that already existed in my head, like books I had read and mythologies I had studied. I sort of, I guess, vaguely looked at, you know, um, 
mythology based in like Great Britain and Ireland and but I also try to put spins on those. I mean, much as with the inspiration coming from the ballets, these are not strict retellings of the ballets. And um, similarly, these are not drawn from any specific, like I, I wasn't intentional to draw from any specific mythology. Um, I really just wanted to, again, like I said earlier, write something that brought me joy, write something that, I would want to read. And so I pulled upon a lot of different mythological elements from various corners to, to build this world and what I hope is a, 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 a respectful homage and reinterpretation of some of those elements. Absolutely. And so something else that is established pretty early on in the story is the relationship that Gemma has between her sisters and how there are a lot of layers there. Sibling relationships can be very complicated. And I'm wondering what made you want to explore those complex dynamics that come with sisters? I do not have sisters. I have a brother. Um, so I don't have experience with sisters, but I certainly have aunts and cousins and friends who have sisters. And I've always been drawn to that dynamic ever since I was little and first discovered books like Little Women and just became obsessed with this very complex song and dance that goes on among sisters. They love each other. They're competitive with each other. They um, have to vie with each other for a parent's attention. They also band together against the parents. There are so many interesting dynamics and having them all be women is an especially interesting dynamic to me because I just love writing any sort of relationships between women and girls, whether that's platonic or familial or romantic. There's just so much complexity in, in women. And so that was a big draw for me. And I also knew that I wanted this to be a series in which each book focuses on a different character. And I will always be drawn to writing women. I have not written from the perspective of a man, and I really have no desire to at this point. Um, so it just felt natural. Okay, if we're going to have a series with multiple protagonists, they need to be sisters. They need to all be in this family. And one of the main through lines thematically of this series is how these sisters have been affected by and how they deal with various kinds of generational trauma because their parents have done some questionable things and have their and those decisions have affected the sisters in different ways and they've grown up with different coping mechanisms to deal with these with these traumas and with these um these burdens and these emotional stresses that have been put on them so i i really wanted to explore how people in the same family can experience and process trauma in different ways. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating the way that, you know, family dynamics sort of ripple out their effect into all of these different ways. I mean, things that Gemma's parents have done, things that her and her siblings have done, all of those things have I don't want to say consequences because that sounds dramatic, but they do have consequences to the way that this family um, exist in this world and sort of moves forward and the way that some of those things sort of shape their identity. Yes. And I think that sort of ties into your earlier question about why I wanted to write an adult story at this time. And I think part of that is also because as you get older, you start to understand more about 
why you are the way you are and what things you experienced as a child and as a teenager that have influenced the adult you've become. And I find that really interesting just on a personal level. And it was, um, it was and continues to be really interesting to explore that with these characters. Absolutely. And I think as you get older, you realize that your parents are people. And I think there are yes. some things that happen here where all of the sisters realize that their their parents are very much flawed humans. Yes. And they will continue to learn more and more about that as the as the story goes on. But you're absolutely right. That's an important part of this. Realizing that their parents have made certain choices and they think that they have made those choices for the right reasons. And maybe they have, maybe they haven't. Everything is drawn in shades of gray. And that's something that I think is very relatable as you become a 20 something like these, these sisters are, you start to understand the complexities of the people around you in ways that you haven't before. And that can be a very um, emotionally unsettling process and very rich, obviously for a writer to play in that sandbox. So I've, I've enjoyed it very much. Absolutely. And so outside of the family dynamics that we have in this story with the Ashbournes, we also have the relationship between Gemma and Talon. So I want to talk about him. What was the inspiration for his character? Because he almost seems too good to be true. He seems flawless. <laughs> and what was the inspiration for Talon as the male love interest here? And do you have like a, did you have an actor in mind for him? Like he's the way I picture him is stunning and beautiful. Uh, so I'm curious what your inspiration was there. Yes, he he was really fun to write. Um, my fan cast for him is like Tom Hiddleston in the Crimson Peak era. So Talon is very like sad, rich vampire vibes, <laughs> um, which is really fun to write. He dresses beautifully. He's just beautiful. And one of the opening chapters, Gemma, meets him and she's just like stunned. She's, she's speechless because she has never seen someone this beautiful. And there's an immediate physical attraction between them, which is really fun to write that kind of like lightning has struck uh, feeling for the character. Um, and a part of his inspiration came from wanting to um, wanting to write a character who seems one way at the beginning and as with lots of great romances and great characters you start to peel away the layers as the story goes on and you learn more and more about him and what has made him the person he is and the traumas that he carries and that's one of the things that draws him and Gemma together is they are both deeply deeply wounded and they're very good at hiding it and when they find each other, they find sort of a reflection of themselves, someone who understands what it's like to bear that kind of pain and, again, hide it really well, and someone who isn't going to judge them for how they have coped with their trauma over the years. Um, these are two lonely people who are drawn to each other before even realizing that one of the things that's drawn them to each other is the fact that they have similar kinds of pain that they're carrying inside them. Um, I also was inspired by, so this, this first book, A Crown of Ivy and Glass is inspired by the ballet Giselle. Um, and in Giselle, there are, I can't, <laughs> I can't say anything because spoilers, but there are some plot elements in Giselle that inspired some of the elements of this. So I hope that fans of the ballet will see some Easter eggs and, uh, references to, to the ballet in here. Um, so that was, that was kind of the genesis of his inspiration. 
I could, again, go into more detail with the inspiration, but that would give things away. So I'll have to leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's always that fine line between enticing but not spoiling. And you had me at Tom Hiddleston, like Crimson Peak vibes. That I mean, is it. perfect. <laughs> His sad face. It's so beautiful and, and tragic and like his like sad furrowed brow. Like I love a good furrowed brow. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite things. And so he's definitely like one of my fan casts for this character. That, oh, that makes it even better in my mind that that's <laughs> who I'm now picturing in this entire story. Perfect. That's so good. So we have all of this. Um, we have a lot of different relationships going on. We've talked about the family dynamics. We've talked about the, the love interest and the romance that is the heart of this book. But I also want to talk about some of the side characters that you've written. Every character is so vivid that I felt like I was in, like amongst all of these people. I could feel their personalities and their humor. And so I'm thinking Gareth and um, Gemma's best friend, Alaria. And I'm wondering if you have a, I know it's maybe like picking children, but if you have a favorite of some of the characters that we might not see as much of in this book, but hopefully see more of in other books as well. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love writing the side characters. Um, the challenge is to not write too much about them and take up too much page time and just, mm -hmm. you know, detract from the main uh, the main character arc. Um, there are lots of fun side characters in here. I really love Alaria. She's the best friend that honestly Gemma doesn't deserve sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we all have had, we have all had those moments where, you know, we're not being as good a friend as we could be. Our friend is being much more patient than when we look back at it, we realize we we deserved, you know? So I, I felt like their, their relationship dynamics felt very real to me as I was crafting them. Alaria is too good for this world. Um, she, I love her. I want her to be my friend. Um, and then there are some other characters that come into the story later that I don't want to give away. Um, but some really interesting additional, um, women who come into Gemma's life in ways that are not always friendly. <laughs> I'm like, I want to talk more about them, but I can't, but there are lots of interesting. And that's one of the things I love about these books is there are many different women and and relationships between women and that is part of the thing that helps each of the sisters along on their respective journeys to process their trauma and like deal with their mental health challenges um as far as people that we'll see in later books one of my favorite side characters who you will see much more of is gareth as you mentioned um he is a um a very nerdy very handsome librarian and professor with glasses and messy hair. And he's always like rolling up his sleeves and talking passionately about some sort of like obscure academic subject. I love him. <laughs> you will definitely see more of him. He was very fun to write. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. He is one of my favorite of the side characters. It's always nice to know that when you grow affection towards one of the characters that I, I'm looking forward to seeing him in other books as well. So you mentioned that one of the pro parts of the process when you're sort of brainstorming and writing is that crucial element and inspiration that you draw from music. I know you've had playlists for other books in the past. So is there a public playlist for this book um, that listeners and readers might get to listen to as well? Yes, there is. I am currently revealing new tracks um, of the playlist every week. 
And so if you search for me on Spotify, that's where all my book playlists are. Um, I also link to them on my website and um, I've been sending out links in my newsletters, um, which you should definitely subscribe to my newsletter if you haven't already. It's um, claire-legrand.com is my website. You can sign up for my newsletter and I I send out a lot of like behind the scenes stuff and talk about the music that inspired me in particular. Um, so if you search for me on Spotify, you can see all my book playlists and I'll be adding more tracks to the A Crown of Ivy and Glass playlist as we move forward. Um, yeah, music is, I used to be a musician. I used to be a trumpet player and I used to be a pianist and it is such a huge part of my creative process. And one of the sisters, Farron, book two is about her her anointed power is music related. And that has been really fun to write because I get to revisit my musical past. That is so great that you brought that up. I was going to ask if that had drawn inspiration from your past life with all of the wonderful musical talent that we get out of Farron. It seems very vivid. I wish I could hear her singing, quite frankly, in these and, you know, playing the piano because it sounds absolutely gorgeous. Me too. I listen to a lot of beautiful piano music when I write her scenes just to get in that, in that mode. Um, yeah, lots, lots more of that to come in book two. I can't wait. And so each sister has sort of a different strength and a different kind of magic. So we've talked about Gemma who's seemingly allergic to magic. She's completely averse to magic and, and doesn't have any powers that we know of. Um, in this book. And then we have Farron who has those musical abilities. And then we have Mara. And I wanted to ask you what the inspiration was or how you came about crafting Mara's character a little bit. She's part of the Order of the Rose. And I wanted to see mm -hmm. if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I love Mara. Her book is book three, and I can't wait to write that because she is a very interesting character. Um, the setup for Mara is that she serves in the Order of the Rose, as you said, which is this um, this organization that is duty bound to protect the continent that they live on from the Middle Mist, basically, because the Middle Mist is this boundary right between the human world and the world of the gods, and sometimes things get through the cracks, um, and you know, uh, fearsome creatures from the realm of the gods or weird kinds of magic that can be harmful to humans. And so the order of the rose protects the human world from things that might slip between the cracks here. Um, and Mara was basically recruited or, um, enlisted drafted, <laughs> um, when she was a young girl and she was brought up at the priory of Rose Warren, which is the home of the order of the rose. And she, um, she, her strength, her natural magic is physical strength. She's a sentinel. So she is extraordinarily fast, has great reflexes, is very strong, just like her father is a sentinel. And so she was a perfect recruit, obviously for the order. And we will definitely learn more about her. She is doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes in book one, because obviously if there's something wrong with the middle mist, which there is in this series, she is right at the heart of that. And a big inspiration for her character and the Order of the Rose in general was the ballet that inspired book three, which is Swan Lake. Um, so if you know the story of Swan Lake, you'll definitely see some parallels between um, 
the swans in Swan Lake and the roses in the order of the rose. That's one of my favorite ballets. So it's been really fun to play with that. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I love that. I, I love the ballet, so that's an added layer of inspiration that makes me very happy as a reader. It's oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Getting better and better and better. And I can attest to your newsletter. It's fantastic. Uh, it made, I am fortunate enough that I got to read this book early and it made the process of reading it so fun to see those little bits and pieces come into my inbox uh, on Mondays. Oh, and I love, I love that you have a playlist. Um, so definitely check it out while reading this um, so you can get the feel for the story and the music. Yeah. And it's also very good if you know, for any writers out there or people who are other types of creators or who just like to listen to music while they're working or studying, my playlists are a great gateway to finding a lot of really great instrumental music for those purposes. I love that. I am always on the hunt for good music I can listen to while doing other things that isn't too distracting. <laughs> so it's <Yes>. perfect. <laughs> some of some of the pieces on my playlist are incredibly distracting and they get really <laughs> pumped up because I'm imagining like the scenes that they accompany, but there's some good background stuff too. Absolutely. Now, speaking of the scenes, do you have a favorite scene from this book? I know that's a little tricky if it's something that might be spoilery. <laughs> <laughs> well, my answer is very spoilery. So I have to be vague. Um, it's a scene that encompasses a couple of chapters toward the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of when the story, you know, is, is right at its climax. And I, I'm a fantasy writer, but I'm also a horror writer. I love scary movies, scary stories. And this part of the story, definitely some horror elements come into play that were really fun to write. Um, Very dramatic, very visual, very cinematic. And so that's my favorite. That was my favorite scene to write probably. But I also liked um, writing any scene that takes place at some kind of party or ball because then I get to indulge my love of describing clothing. (laughs) Um, Even though those scenes are really tricky because there's a lot of things going on, a lot of moving parts, a lot of people and a lot of dancing and moving around the room. And again, logistically challenging kind of like love scenes. Um, It's a different kind of action scene essentially. So those scenes are always like exhausting in the moment, but then after I really like them and I'm proud of them. So there are a few scenes of that nature in this book and each one was really fun in its own way. I was going to say, I loved the scenes at those grand balls or parties because Gemma's clothing sounds incredible. 
First oh my gosh. All, yes. Yeah. I want her wardrobe, <laughs> like her wardrobe, her hair and makeup. So I loved all of that sort of like getting ready before the party. Those mm-hmm. scenes were so vividly drawn. I could picture, you know, her gowns and the glamours of other people in the makeup and all of that. So I love that. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> So I have a couple of questions that I will designate as the spoiler section um, of this because I would love to know (laughs) myself uh, as a reader. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is the spoiler section. If you have not yet read this book and you should, I'm going to address something that is a spoiler and we'll uh, clarify that as well. Put this at the end of the interview, probably. Um, but I'm wondering, are the Ashbourne sisters Faye? They are not. Okay. They are not. Um, I guess that's all I can say about that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Um, Even more intrigue. Yes, they are not. And I, I put that in there as a sort of red herring because there Mm -hmm. are so many great Faye stories out there. Mm -hmm. And so probably some people expected that, especially with the comparison in the, in the, um, the pitch to a court of yeah. thorns and roses, but no, they are not Faye. Okay. So on it, I'm honestly even more intrigued now to know more about their heritage. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a lot of that in book two right now, and it's been really fun to write. So not so much a spoiler, um, depending on how you answer it, but do you know where Gemma's mother is? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm glad to know that that's fleshed out and we'll maybe uh-huh. learn more as the series goes on. You definitely will. Oh, their family dynamic is so fascinating. Honestly, there's so many different layers there. Yes. And they, you know, and that goes back to the generational slash family trauma element of all of these characters stories. This family has been pretending for a very long time and not addressing their pain. And that's not only the sisters, but also their father. Um, their mother is not present um, in in their lives at this point, but their father is. And he has been focusing obsessively on a family feud with another family and not really focusing on being a father to his daughters um, and helping them you know, grow up and become adults and supporting them. He he has, he has many issues, (laughs) Um, but I, but, you know, I, I think that is again, like everyone's family life is so complex and it becomes more complex the older you get. And that was one of the main draws for me in writing this series was to depict complicated, complex, messy, frustrating family dynamics but it isn't all bad at the same time. There's still love there. So yeah, very fun to write those dynamics. Absolutely. And now we've talked a little bit about Gemma's sister, Farron. And for my own uh, selfish reasons, I'm going to ask you, like, was I imagining the tension between Farron and Ryder Basque? You were not. Okay. <laughs> I am so happy to hear that. Uh, that mm-hmm. sizzled off the page. Yeah, they they were very fun to write in book one. Um, you will see more of him. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> I want to say so many more I, things, but I will restrain myself. <laughs> absolutely. So for readers of this book, you're in luck. I'm in luck because I can't wait. And this is what's so funny is here I am asking you uh, questions about your forthcoming book. It's not even out yet. And I'm already like, well, where's book two? <laughs> and you're like, Emma, it takes a year plus to write this book. Um, you read it in two days and I, you know, <laughs> we've got to wait for it to even come out, but I am so happy to hear that. I absolutely can't wait. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, my book's Someday I'm going to write a short book. This is the thing <laughs> that I say every time I sit down to plan a new project. And yet all of my books end up just being like these really dense bricks. And mm -hmm. that's again, part of the process I mentioned earlier. Like I've just come to accept this, but mm -hmm. I do have a goal someday to write like a really short book, but these are, these are not that. So definitely the kind of, um, complex, like lush kind of book that you can sink your teeth into and stay in for a while, which mm -hmm. is, I, I really like those kinds of books. Um, so yeah, book two, I, I am working on it, but you know, they're long books. <laughs> yeah. They take, they take their time. They and do. so that brings me to my next question actually. And again, it is so funny. I think it's maybe publishing because they're always looking to the next thing. This book has not even come out yet, um, but I am wondering what you are working on currently that you can talk about. So um, book yeah. two. Yeah. So I'm working on book two of this series. And then of course, after that, I'll be working on book three. Um, I guess I shouldn't say any more about book two. Mm -hmm. I've already, I've already <laughs> dropped some hints. So I feel like that that's enough, you know, control yourself, Claire. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm really enjoying working on book two and, um, beyond that I'm starting, I'm in the like early percolating stages of planning an adult standalone horror. Um, so I'm very, very excited about that total, you know, 180 from these books, um, but definitely something that I am excited to try. I have a couple of horror YA books. And so mm -hmm. I'm excited to, again, like take the next step and stretch into the adult space and see how that feels. Oh, excellent. I love to, I am so happy to hear that you are working on, um, the rest of this trilogy and then also an adult horror. Um, mm -hmm. I love that. <laughs> That's so cool. So now I am going to to hopefully segue uh, into a couple of random questions, if you'll indulge me uh, for our, our listeners. So have you read any great fantasy books that you would recommend lately? So honestly, not lately, because I try to not <laughs> read what I'm writing, yep. <laughs> um, but I'll just name a couple of my favorites that I keep returning to just for comfort reads over the years. Um, and these probably will not surprise anyone who has ever heard me talk about anything, but um, I am a huge, huge fan of Kristen Kishore and her young adult fantasy books. They are YA, but they are also in that crossover space to me where they have a lot of appeal for um, adult readers as well. And they are so complex and ambitious with such beautiful, vivid writing and these these women and girls who are at the heart of each of her stories are so layered and interesting and not always likable. And 
they are messy and they go through such incredible journeys. It's just like those books were written for me. Kristen Kishore, if you're out there listening to this, like, I love you. I love your books. Thank you for writing them. Um, another book that has been uh, for the past couple of years, like a favorite that I have read multiple times is Circe by Madeline Miller. I am obsessed with that book. Again, when I read it, I felt like I was coming home. Like this is, this was written for me. Um, I have a hard time these days. And I think part of that is what I referred to before, because I have learned more and more about storytelling as a writer. So I have a hard time separating my writer self from my reader self when I sit down and read for pleasure. Um, but that book, I completely disappeared into. Also, Piranesi, I think that's how you pronounce it by Susanna Clark, was another book that I just completely disappeared into and I I forgot that I was a writer. You know, I was just a reader enjoying the ride, which is a very rare experience for me these days. And so those books that can do that are very special to me. Um, another book that I read, I guess, last year, not a fantasy book, but another book that made me just disappear into the rush of storytelling was The Secret History by Donna Tartt. And um, so I always recommend that now if somebody wants um, a really good page turner that is just completely bonkers and beautifully written. Um, so those are some of my favorites that I sort of come back to from time to time to just remind myself like, oh yeah, like this is fun what I'm doing. It's my job and it's challenging, but also I love books and I love storytelling. So let's, you know, let's remember that and not get too overwhelmed. Absolutely. And those are some absolute classics, some fantastic books that have come out in the last few years as well. Now, this um, is your first time, I believe, going on book tour in the last couple of years. Are you looking forward to seeing readers again in person? I am. It's, you know, I had my first in-person book event since before the pandemic recently. And I was a little nervous because I I thought to myself, I'm not sure I remember how to do this because I've done, as we all have done, you know, three years of virtual events and connecting with people um, through technology, which is wonderful, of course, but I have missed that face-to-face -face connection. Um, and that event that I went to was wonderful. And I fell back into the magic and the rhythm of what it's like to connect with readers face-to-face. -face. I have my first in-person school visit later this week, which I'm very excited about. So I, I, appreciate very much that we were able to connect with each other during the past few years online, but I'm also extremely excited to make that face-to-face -face connection again. There's something just magical about that, especially when you're talking to younger readers, like when I go do school visits. Um, that's a sort of connection that's really hard to replicate online, so I'm so excited and um, very excited to visit bookstores. I've missed going to bookstores around the country um, excited to revisit some old favorites and connect with readers in as many places as I can. That's so exciting. And I, as a reader, I love that we're slowly starting to see our favorite authors do more and more events because it is such a different energy, you know, as a reader to be able to fan over our favorite authors in person as opposed to, um, using technology, although it's certainly a great, um, option during the last couple of years. Yes. And, you know, we, we like to 
fan it up too. Like (laughs) I love, I love seeing other writers in person and telling them face to face, oh my gosh, I loved your book or just nerding out with readers and the signing line about a TV show we're all watching or a book we all just read and loved. You know, it's, it's, it's fun to experience that enthusiasm in, in, in person. It's fun to nerd out with my fellow nerds. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, as we're biased, that book people are the best people. <laughs> it's it's true. It's true. You you see like a bookstore and, or I see a bookstore and I feel immediately at home. I go in and I'm like, these are my people. I feel safe here. I feel mm-hmm. seen and respected. And I could probably make like a new best friend if I started talking to any random person in the store. So I, I'm excited about that. Absolutely. Now, as we wrap up, I'm wondering if, and uh, this is a question I like to ask authors, but um, is a little bit tricky. Um, Is there anything that you would like for readers to take away from this story? Yeah, I, you know, there are several things, but I, I think the primary one is something I mentioned a little earlier, that the idea that mentally ill babes can find love too, and can be heroes and can save the day and, and wear fabulous dresses and have beautiful, full, rich, messy lives. And they can do so while being someone who lives with anxiety and depression, chronic pain, they have to deal with challenges that people who don't live with those things don't have to deal with, but they can still have lives and fall in love and be heroes and have fun and fight with their sisters and all of those things that are part of what we would think of as an ordinary life, just because they live with anxiety and depression, like I do. And I drew heavily upon my experiences with that when writing Gemma's story, just because they live with those things doesn't mean they can't be the hero and they can't fall in love. And I really, really wanted to show all of these sisters, each with their own unique problems and challenges being able to not just accept those things, but start working through them. Nothing magically gets fixed. This is, there's no magic fix for any of their challenges, but they do learn how to cope with them better. And part of that is through the love for each other and the love for the people that they fall in love with in each book. Well, that's absolutely perfect. And I have nothing to contribute that will top that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So where can our listeners find you online? Yes. So I am not on social media, but I do have my website at claire-legrand.com. And via my website, as I mentioned earlier, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Um, Right now I'm sending it out more often than I usually do because the book's Mm -hmm. about to come out. But I promise I am not going to show up in your inbox like every day. I like to send out quick newsletters when I have like a, a new book coming out or an ebook sale or just some kind of fun piece of news. I like to share parts of my writing process and the music that inspires me and give some behind the scenes tidbits about my books and my characters. So it's definitely the best way to keep up with me and to be uh, in the loop in terms of news and updates. So um, you can also find me on Pinterest and on Spotify. Um, so those are the ways we can connect. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, it was such a delight to chat with you. I cannot wait for other readers to be able to read and enjoy a crown of Ivy and glass. 
Thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation so very much, and I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.